Greetings from the far side of the wormhole nexus, and welcome to the Vorecast, a podcast about Lois McMaster Bujold's Vorkosigan Saga. My name is Daniel Galsworth, and I would like to welcome you all back to episode two, where we'll be continuing to read through the first installment of the Vorkosigan Saga, the short story Dreamweaver's Dilemma. But before we continue with our breakdown, I'd like to do a bit of housekeeping from the last episode, starting with possibly the most important issue. I would like to clarify that there is actually plenty of excellent content out there, already the Alien vs. Predator universe, but it's almost all in comics. In fact, while editing the last episode, I became inspired to reread the old Alien vs. Predator comics, and that got me thinking about another crossover comic series that I loved when I was a kid, the Robocop vs. Terminator series. I just looked it up, and it turns out that it was written by Frank Miller. No wonder it was so good. Anyway, I got it on my iPad now, and I'm loving it. Highly recommend. The next topic of housekeeping is about the issue of the pronunciation guide. I ended up recording the segment where I referenced the guide to pronounce Anais Ray's name after I recorded most of the episode. That segment was put in the middle of the episode, so it does seem like I continued to mispronounce the name even after I looked it up. However, this does not account for why I inexplicably added an S to the end of Ruiz at one point. So, for clarification, the last name R-U-E-Y can be pronounced, according to the pronunciation guide, as Rae or Ray. And for simplicity, I'm just going to pronounce it as Ray going forward. Also, I was trying to think of a, the standardized symbolic pronunciation guide that I was aware of. I looked it up, and it's called the International Phonetic Alphabet, a system used to indicate word pronunciation in, in dictionaries and stuff. If you ever look up a word, and right next to the word, you'll see kind of what looks like that word dissected into strange pieces with uncommon symbols and stuff. That is the IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet. And in the last episode, I pointed out that it would have been useful if the editor of the pronunciation guide had used that system. But it turned out that he had invented his own and explained it in the intro section of the pronunciation guide, which I neglected to read. So I'm going to read it now. And the reason that I neglected to read it is because I'm not sure if this is a good idea or not, but I'm, I'm kind of trying not to read too deeply into the supplemental materials until necessary because I kind of like the idea of reacting to information as I read it and being able to record that and stuff like that. So I don't know, that that might be foolhardy, is that the word, or misguided? But, you know, that's why I I missed this whole section because I I went straight to uh, looking up the name and I I skipped right past the intro. So, but, uh, you know, it's, it's this guy put in time to develop this whole uh, system of pronunciation and, and, and compile and compile this guide. So might as well give him his due credit and read his intro. A Pronunciation Guide to Names and Places by Sue Ford Lewis. All right, let me turn the light off. I realized that another reason why I was having such trouble reading aloud, besides the fact that I'm not very good at it, is because I couldn't really see. <laughs> so I put a light in so I can actually read. All right, so right off the bat, we get a pass. The author says that we may pronounce the names as we please, but many readers wish to know how she pronounces them. Without getting too finicky, this is to give an indication of the syllables which are more emphasized and the approximate values of the vowels and consonants of some of the names used in the works of Lois McMaster Bujold. So I believe he's saying, without getting too finicky, he's maybe commenting there on why he used a simplified symbology here. Brief identifications will include 
the work in which the person or place principally appears. Oh, come on, man. Person or place principally appears. You did that on purpose, Mr. Suford. This is not a complete guide to the pronunciation of all names in Bujold's work. It contains dot 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 what it contains. So go fuck yourself. No. <laughs> it contains what it contains with an attempt to cover all major characters and the minor ones whose pronunciation might get tricky. And then we go, uh, he actually, in uh, two columns, uh, writes out his own pronunciation guide. Uh, I'm not going to attempt to read that. <laughs> He goes into diphthongs a little bit. Diphthongs besides A-I, A-Y, and O-Y will be included with vowels separated by an underline. For instance, A-I could be equivalently written as A-H underscore E-E. I-E. So I think, let's see, A-I is I-E, A-Y is I-A, and O-Y is O-Y. That's, a, that's how I'm going to pronounce those, just from, just on first sight here. The diphthong sounds. The stress in a word is indicated by capital letters. The secondary stress is indicated by small capital letters. Many subtle differences are ignored. The TH in thin is not distinguished from the TH in then. Oh, that's so cool. You ever watch those YouTubes with the guy who dissects accents? Oh man, it's so interesting. And he like grows a beard for a while. It's a, it's just it's a whole drama. <laughs> okay. The precise pronunciation of the U in survey is simplified to its less continental cousin uh UH. And the rolled R is ignored. Purist beware. So purist beware, that's me who would just be like, man, why aren't you using the international phonetic alphabet? Man, that's 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 directed towards me. Okay, key to abbreviations for works. Yes, so that DD that we read earlier did stand for Dreamweaver Dilemma. So that's how we're going to be using this pronunciation guide going forward now that we are informed and duly humbled for our phonetic snobbery. Phonetic symbological snobbery. Hmm. That, that, you know, that sounds like a, actually a classic Bujold line there. <laughs> Okay, the next topic of housekeeping is about the use of adverbs I mentioned in the last episode. I said that I vaguely remembered Stephen King having some strong opinions about their use in his memoir slash writing guide on writing. Since then, I looked up the passage I remembered, and I was correct that King does not like them. In fact, it's kind of a notorious passage among the people who are interested in writing technique. I think it would be really instructive to read through this passage to get an idea of what King's problems with adverbs are. But I would first like to say that I like this aspect of LMB's writing, and I believe that it safely belongs in the beloved category of classic Bujold. I find that it helps impart a nuance to the storytelling, which is a defense of the careful use of adverbs that I stole from somewhere. I read it somewhere. I, I don't remember. In LMB's case, I think that it keeps the tone of the stories lighthearted in a way that is part of the magic of the series. LMB writes about some of the darkest parts of human nature, but the stories never feel cynical or hopeless. If King says that using adverbs like this is a sign of an insecure or timid writer, then LMB's use of them is a perfect counterbalance to the moment when the reader is shocked by her sudden confidence to subvert expectations. The stakes seem deadly real, but unlike the world of Westeros, for example, the grimness of LMB's reality never seems insufferable or exhausting to the reader. So this comes from a kind of condensed version of 
Stephen King's thoughts on adverbs that I found on the internet. It's kind of just quotes from that section, but I think it gets all the main points across. Okay, so I'm just going to read through it. It's uh, not too long. Adverbs are words that modify verbs, adjectives, or other adverbs. They're the ones that usually end in ly. Adverbs, like the passive voice, seem to have been created with the timid writer in mind. With adverbs, the writer usually tells us he or she is afraid, he or she isn't expressing himself or herself clearly, that he or she is not getting the point or the picture across. Consider the sentence, he closed the door firmly. It's by no means a terrible sentence, at least it's got an active verb going for it, but ask yourself if firmly really has to be there. You can argue that it expresses a degree of difference between he closed the door and he slammed the door, and you'll get no argument from me. But what about context? What about all the enlightening, not to say emotionally moving prose, which came before he closed the door and firmly? Shouldn't this tell us how he closed the door? Or if the foregoing prose does tell us, isn't firmly an extra word? Isn't it redundant? Someone out there is now accusing me of being tiresome and anal retentive. I deny it. I believe the road to hell is paved with adverbs. Very funny. And I shout, and I will shout uh, it from the rooftop. Yeah, that's the famous quote from this, from this section of the book. The road to hell is paved with adverbs. To put it another way, they're like dandelions. If you have one in your lawn, it looks pretty and unique. If you fail to root it out, however, you'll find five the next day, 50 the day after that. And then, my brothers and sisters, your lawn is totally, completely, and profligatedly covered with dandelions. Ha ha ha. So that was three adverbs in a row right there. Great. By then you see them for the weeds they really are. But by then, it's <gasps> gasp. Too late. So, yeah, you can see he's, he's writing style here. And, you know, he's being a bit of a, a jerk, very overconfident, you know, uh, very kind of sarcastic and judgmental, honestly. Um, but, you know, he has, it's, it's, I mean, he's talking with the same confidence of, say, like Michael Jordan, <laughs> like no one can really fault him uh, or really truly call it arrogance, you know, anyway, I can be a good sport about adverbs though. Yes, I can. With one exception, dialogue attribution. And of course, this is LMB's greatest sin. You know, this is how she uses them all the time. Dialogue attribution. I insist that you use adverbs and dialogue attribution only in the rarest and most special occasions, and not even then if you can avoid it. Just to make sure we all know what I'm talking about, examine these three sentences. Put it down, he shouted. Give it back, he pleaded. It's mine. Don't be such a fool, Jekyll, Utterson said. In these sentences, shouted, pleaded, and said are verbs of dialogue attribution. Now look at these dubious revisions. Put it down, she shouted menacingly. Give it back, he pleaded abjectly. It's mine. Don't be such a fool, Jekyll, Utterson said contemptuously. The three latter sentences are all weaker than the three former ones, and most readers will see why immediately. And then there's like another quote here that's not grouped in with the rest of them, but I'll just read it. And one final thought. I'm convinced that fear is the root of most bad writing. If one is writing for one's own pleasure, that fear may be mild. Timidity is the word I've used here. If, however, one is under a deadline, a school paper, a newspaper article, an SAT writing example, the fear may be intense. Dumbo got airborne with the help of a magic feather. 
you may feel the urge to grasp a passive verb or one of those nasty adverbs for the same reason. Just remember, before you do, that Dumbo didn't need the feather. The magic was in him the whole time. There we can see Stephen King makes, does he make good points about, I mean, he definitely makes the point that he doesn't like the adverb uh, and he hates it in dialogue attribution, as he calls it. King does make a very good point when he argues that the emphasis or the modification to an action that the adverb does could be better used before the action to, as far as context, and we've talked about how preferable using context as a storytelling technique is to say, like just having characters kind of awkwardly explaining things that they should already both know kind of deal, you know? So, I mean, context is king, uh, and uh, King is right to point that out. But the examples he gives, if you compare the two sentences, one does seem more concise, and that's typically what is wanted in writing. If you can say what you want in the fewest amount of words, it always seems better. It's good for pacing. It's good to keep the interest of your reader, and it's good to keep the attention. Well, is that the same thing as interest? Is interest and attention the same thing? Possibly. But it's just kind of one of these best practices generalizations for good writing um, and of course you know rules are meant to be broken the main point he makes is that it's a sign of a timid writer and that's what makes me believe that lmb has the right to use them as much as she wants because she is just constantly surprising you with the subject matter of her of her writing you know and how maturely she handles topics that most people would never be willing to admit that there could possibly be like a moral gray area around certain topics yet she goes there and i don't believe that a timid writer could possibly touch on those subjects in the, in the manner she does so then if she's not using these adverbs as a sign of timidity why does she use it well i think it's because they're fun they're kind of whimsical it keeps the general tone of her writing like i said it's keeps it lighthearted enough, yet the content of the story, you know, the narrative of the plot, takes our characters into the dark places where just, it's not a fairy tale, is what I'm getting at. Also, there's another um, passage in the book about the passive verb, and, you know, if you are interested in improving your writing, uh, I would recommend Googling Stephen King passive verb and seeing what he has to say about that. I, I actually agree with him on both cases, at passive verbs and adverbs. They're not great. Uh, and, and you should try to avoid them. Uh, but what can I say? I think they work here. Classic Bujold stamp of approval. I kind of talked about this a little bit in uh, last week's episode, but what's interesting about this book is that it was published in 2000, and King was hit by a, was run over by a, a van in 1999. And he actually talks about that in the book on writing. But it's even more interesting to think about that it must have actually happened to him while he was writing it. Uh, and I really think that you can ten, you can kind of sense a change of perspective in his writing uh, in this actual single book from before and after the accident because he's definitely not like this judgment you know, th like this kind of arrogant judgmental you know even um, you know mildly uh, condescending tone in his like in his writing like i believe goes away at some point i haven't read the whole thing through uh for many years but i remember taking that away so something interesting if you if you wanted to read that book 
Also, screw adverbs. At least Ellen B. didn't write herself into her own series because she couldn't figure out how to end it. Burn. A few more little topics of housekeeping. I want to clarify that I was not criticizing Ellen B. for not anticipating email, but I was criticizing her for using contemporary nomenclature that tends to seem out of place in her carefully crafted settings. This is something she continues to do in her writing, and I will continue to point it out. And to double down on my point that, you know, a future society couldn't possibly understand the significance of something being lost in the mail, even people born 20 years ago would not understand the concept of not having tracking for every kind of parcel that you send out there. If you can imagine the time that she was living in, four to six weeks for a package to be delivered was standard on ordering anything. If you order anything from the catalog, four to six weeks, right? And it was just a black hole. You, you just you know, trusted that they sent it to you and that it would get there. And lots of times things wouldn't. Shipping and receiving mail used to be almost synonymous with putting a message in a bottle in terms of not knowing where the message was on its journey. Also, I wanted to point out something that LMB did seem to anticipate. If not email, then at least some kind of internet. She mentioned in an offhand way, which is the best way to integrate technology into a story, that Anais checked her bank balance on her phone screen. This suggests that the phone is much like the modern computer or Chromebook and that it could connect through some kind of network to her bank. Once again, remember, this was written in 1982. So it's not like she was influenced by the potential that she saw from using internet herself. I mean, you can, in 1982, the, the people didn't have the internet in their houses. So I looked up a little bit of history of the internet here. So we can kind of, and, and I'm going into detail because I, I just want to really paint the picture of the concepts that she was generating in the context of her time and how much more impressive uh, that makes it because it's just a, you know, I mean, it's, it's called speculation, speculative fiction and the best speculative fiction speculates well. What can you say? Okay, so I looked up this timeline for the development of the internet and if uh, you guys have never watched anything or read up on how that happened, uh, I mean, it, you gotta do it. It's, it's, I mean, it should be essential knowledge, really, the history of internet development. It's just because why? I mean, it makes so much sense. It's such an important part of modern society. Or it is modern society. Okay, so here's, this is from the timeline. This is just from the 80s segment of the timeline. Dave Farber of the University of Delaware reveals a project to build an inexpensive network using dial-up phone lines. In 1982, which is when this was written, which was when this story story was written, the phone net system is established and is connected to ARPANET, which was the Army's internet. The original internet was for military use, called ARPANET. And the first commercial network, Telnet. This broadens access to the internet and allows for email communication between multiple nations of the world. In 1981, Metcalf's company 3Com announced Ethernet products for both computer and workstations and personal computers. Okay, so Ethernet. Most people think about Ethernet as this plug, you know, that kind of fat, like what used to look like a phone jack, but now it's a little fatter. That's your Ethernet cable. Everyone talks about it. It's, it's not a cable. It's a protocol, and it's a protocol that allowed, oh, you know, that was standardized so that all the computers in the world could talk the same language, right? Uh, so Ethernet is a protocol. That's a, a little of my IT nerd coming out. Okay. Uh, personal computers. This allowed for the establishment of local area networks or LANs. 
Paul Makapetris, John Postel, and Craig Partridge created the domain name system, which used which uses domain names to manage the increasing number of users on the internet. In 1985, the first domain is registered symbolics.com, a domain belonging to, the comp to a computer manufacturer. Isn't that cool? Now you know what the very first domain name was. Symbolics.com, huh, interesting. So you can see that the internet at this point in, in history was not something that the common person would have access or experience uh, with or it could even like checking your bank statement online was not was not a feature of the internet at this point. It's the point I'm trying to say. So she speculated from maybe whatever you know, like her father was an engineer. She obviously has a deep interest in science and, and um, natural science, and, and so she may have done some you know been exposed to the internet in some form uh, of this up to this point at this point in her life, but really, uh, she, may, she, she might have just speculated that whole concept from nothing or from vague rumors, and that's it's truly impressive. And it's also the speculation of such an elaborate technology, but the character is using it for a relatively mundane task, which is actually how we really use most of our fabulous technology that we have, mostly mundane tasks. That's what I'm saying when I'm like, she's using the technology to tell the story. In science fiction writing, or in any writing, if you have some object or technology that you focus on and build up that's gonna do the most amazing something, the more you hype it up, the less significant it seems because it turns something from part of the character's life that they use in a way that makes sense, in a practical way, uh, into a, MacGuffin, you know, pretty much just like a, just a thing that drives the story. And no matter how cool that thing turns out to be, how big the sky beam is or, you know, cloud monster or whatever, it's just not going to have as much impact on the reader as something like this, where just from a simple statement, a whole level of complexity is added on to the world in which these characters inhabit. You know, I really want to give her as much credit as possible. I know I came down kind of hard on her last episode. <laughs> but this episode, I'll tell you what, she's going to get a lot of uh, ass kissing. So I brought my knee pads and I hope she did her vinyasas. Okay. Finally, I want to touch on the concept of implanting those nodes into Nias's brain so she can integrate with her dream synthesizer. I don't know how I forgot to point this out, but this kind of technology is being developed right now by Elon Musk's Neuralink. Not only is Neuralink developing this kind of brain integration technology, but they are simultaneously developing the cutting edge of automated precision surgery robots to implant the neural connections. Okay, so then I went to their webpage and looked up some of their information. If, if you're not aware of Neuralink, I mean, I assume some people may not know about it or really understand what it's about. So, uh, just to kind of, once again, point out the way that LMB presents us with this future tech, it's part of the story. It's not part of the spectacle. If you guys are interested in uh, another book about writing, uh, it's, it's a little older than Stephen King's uh, Aristotle's Poetics, a couple thousand years old, in which he says very clearly and multiple times how the importance of the plot uh, over the spectacle, how that no amount of spectacle can save a bad story. <laughs> I don't think he uses the word plot, he uses something else. Um, but 
even back then, they understood that story is all. And so LMB uses the technology as storytelling devices, the world that is implied by this kind of surgery, okay? This kind of casual brain surgery, you know, it, it's, it's compelling. And it's not even that, and it's not even that improbable because right now we have Neuralink and let's, so here's what, here's what Neuralink does. Okay, so this is from the Neuralink website. A direct link between the brain and everyday technology. So pretty much describing Anais's link with her dream synthesizer, not necessarily everyday technology, but the initial goal of our technology will be to help people with paralysis to regain independence through the control of computers and mobile devices. Our devices are designed to give people the ability to communicate more easily via text and speech synthesis, to follow their curiosity on the web, or to express their creativity through photography, art, or writing apps. The future of Neuralink engineering. The link is a starting point for a new kind of brain interface. Our as our technology develops, we will be able to increase the channels of communication with the brain, accessing more brain areas and new kind of neural information. This technology has the potential to treat a wide range of neurological disorders, to restore sensory and movement function, and eventually to expand how we interact with each other, with the world, with ourselves. And I think that's the sentence where uh, dream weaving would uh, fall. What will the link do? We will design the link to connect to thousands of neurons in the brain. It will be able to record the activities of these neurons, process these signals in real time, and send the information to the link. As the first application of this technology, we plan to help people with quadriplegia by giving them the ability to control computers and mobile devices directly with their brains. We would start by recording neural activity in the brain's movement areas. As users think about moving their arms and hands, we would decode those intentions, which would be sent over Bluetooth to the user's computer. The users would initially learn to control a virtual mouse. Later, as users get even more practice and our adaptive decoding algorithms continue to improve, we expect that users will be able to control multiple devices, including a keyboard or a game controller. How freaking cool that at this moment we can witness. Now, this is, all right, that's the end of the quote there. So that's from Neuralink. So this is back to me. How freaking cool that at this moment we can witness the early steps towards realizing this sci-fi technology uh, from the story. Okay, so now uh, we will get back to our story. What do you think of all that? Hello, fellow Vorkies. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me at thevorecastpodcast at gmail.com or send me a message on Instagram at thevorecast, all one word. That's T-H-E-V-O-R-C-A-S-T. Please rate Review, like, follow, and or subscribe to the Vorecast on whatever podcast platform you use. Thanks, and always remember, forward momentum. So, where were we in the story? Anais Ray is a feely dream composer. She is in an artistic and financial dilemma, which is that she is far past a deadline to deliver a sequel to her last successful feely dream to her distributor, Helmut Gonzalez. His motivation... Helmet withholds her future royalty payments until she delivers. Anias, not interested in making sequels, has, however, already spent the advance for it. Now, realizing she is almost broke, tries to get to work by connecting her brain to her dream synthesizer. Her disinterest in making the sequel bleeds into her creative process, and her first attempt at composing a feely dream is ruined. 
At this point, she receives a phone call from the dubious-looking Rudolf Kinsey, who begins the conversation by offering Anais a solution to her financial problems in the form of a matter of business. Okay, so we're going to pick it up a few lines before there. And uh, please forgive the street noise. We're down amongst the people here on the forecast. And if we don't record it now, it ain't going to get recorded. So the phone chimed. Reprieved, she answered it. A man she did not know with oily black hair and an inadequate chin appeared on the screen. Miss Ray, he began politely. My name is Rudolph Kinsey. I wonder if I may make an appointment to speak with you on a matter of business. You're speaking now, Anias pointed out. She added suspiciously, You're not selling insurance, are you? Oh, no, no. He waved the suggestion away with a smile that reminded her of a shark. Perhaps it was because it did not reach his eyes. Perhaps it was merely the effect of the chin. I mean, an appointment to speak with you in person. Um, it's a delicate matter. So this is our introduction to Mr. Rudolph Kinsey. What's interesting to point out here is that she is just She's really not being subtle about, like, how dastardly this guy is. He's even, like, got this sort of slimy cadence to how he speaks, or at least that's how I read his dialogue. So right away, we, we can, like, just put a pin in this, because I want to come back to this later once we get a little more into the plot, that I believe that this is actually uh, a bit of misdirection. And I don't know, I could be reading into it a little bit, but as we see, as we'll continue to see, like... Like, she does not pull her punches when just describing, like, how silent movie villain this guy is, right? So, yeah, let's uh, see see how that plays out. Oh, and then I also want to point something else out that seems like at the moment, and, and this is great, like, because, um, you know, LMV is funny, you know? Like, sometimes, and this, another pet peeve of mine, uh, and of course, I, I think she, you know, that she falls victim to this as much as anybody, but, like, like what, what if you really want to, like, kill your writing... Have have everyone find something like hilarious that is actually not funny, right? And if, so, if you have like a funny character that, or a character that you're writing that, you know, or, or you're ever reading a character that's supposed to be funny, and it's like, hey, this, and then you know, of course, the the writer might do something like, hey, this is my friend, he's so funny, you know. And then anytime the writer, the author, tries to do something with this character that is funny, it's just falls flat yet the other characters have to react as if it's hilarious right i mean yeah maybe i'm getting too specific here but this is a thing this is a trope or not a trope but this is definitely a pitfall and but lmb is funny and and let me uh let me prove it to you we have a couple of cliches here pretty bad ones pretty bad ones in her description here we got he waved the suggestion away with a smile that reminded her of a shark Perhaps it was because it did not reach his eyes. Okay, so it's a pretty bad cliche in my opinion, although it slips by a lot, which is the smile describing somebody as their smile not meaning their eyes. It's just been done to death. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it works. It's kind of, you know, it, it's prosy, it's whatever, but it's, if I'm paying more attention to the words you're using than your description of the character, then you're failing. So we have that, and then we also have this sort of like, cold unfeeling shark thing uh, I don't know when this book came out in relation to the the movie Jaws but you know who knows but then the next sentence saves the whole thing and shows you that she knew what she was doing perhaps it was merely the effect of the chin 
okay, I know I'm, you know, it's not the most comedic delivery, but you know, this is genuinely funny. This is a joke. And the setup is the cliche. It's almost like a meta thing. <laughs> so perhaps I'm reading too much into this, but uh, I really enjoyed that. So we have this, uh, we have Kinsey is, wants to meet up with uh, Anais uh, to discuss something in person. Here we get a little bit more just sort of in your face, this guy, <laughs> don't trust this guy, right? Anais meditated upon him for a moment. He did not have the look of a fan or journalist. There was something sly about him as though he ought to be a professional blackmailer or an upper-class pimp. Okay, so she's really painting a picture, you know, warning, 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 right? And I is sort of like, in the, you know, in, a, in the moment, wondering, oh my God, she checks her conscience to see if she could possibly be about to be extorted for something, but no. So she pretty much comes to the conclusion that, oh, okay, this must be somebody who wants a private feely dream once more, expanding the universe, expanding the commerce in this universe. This is very much seen now in uh, social media celebrities kind of things where they offer, you know, one-on-one -on -one interaction and that kind of stuff. It's not really, it's not too, too typical of classic celebrities, but it is in the future. It must be and is. Okay, she decides quote, reasonably that he probably wished to commission a private feely dream, most likely the rank variety. So she agrees to make an appointment to see him and then continues to try to work on her sequel to Triad. And here we get like some really exciting speculation and, and just imagination of you know, how this type of t technology can work. And it's just really brilliant. And because it just, even though it's fantastical, it's, yes, it makes sense in, in an intuitive way that this could be part of it. And also it flushes out the kind of benign reality of how people use technology again, uh, which is usually, you know, for the, what most people would consider basest reasons. And so I'm gonna read through this. And it's really kind of fascinating insight into how this machine works. This uh, Feely Dream synthesizer. Work did not go well that afternoon. Her characters, each commissioned to carry its own little burden of ego and feeling, persisted in sliding off into inappropriate speech and behavior. So interesting. So interesting. Each character in her Feely Dream, she has to attribute a burden of ego. A little burden of ego. What a beautiful way to describe consciousness, <laughs> you know? Little burden of ego, amazing, I love that. And that, because that there is, she's sort of, it gives this consciousness, this burden of ego to their characters, if she doesn't pay attention, they can wander off and do, go on their own, you know, agenda, it's fucking great. Her own irritation and boredom with her assignment kept erupting into puckish outbreaks of character torture, necessitating several erasures. And whenever action did begin to flow, the phone was sure to chime. Okay, yeah, so I just wanted to, to read through that. The burden of ego. Beautiful. We get a little more description of how Anais is failing. Uh, and, you know, for this reason or that, she's being interrupted by phone calls. She's losing her concentration. She's sort of being worked up into sort of a state of frustration. And that's when uh, Rudolph Kinsey shows up for their appointment that they had made earlier which he had forgotten about completely and we get his entrance Rudolf Kinsey was even less attractive in person than on the phone 
He shook hands with a clammy softness, like a slug with bones. In her current mood, however, she took him as a preferable alternative to her intractable dream hero. And then she talks about how she really hopes that he gets to the point, you know, because she thinks he probably wants something, some Billy dream really weird, and then clients tend to like talk around the issue. Uh, and so he sits right down. I am given to understand. So here's this, here's this course, sleaze, sleazy cadence. I'm going to try to really uh, lay on the sleeve here. I'm given to understand. <laughs> that, come, that was more like Scott Thompson's character, Buddy, from Kids in the Hall. Okay, hold on. I'm given to understand that you occasionally do custom freelance dreams for a fee, in addition to the work you do under contract to the Sweet Dreams Distribution Company. He began precisely. Anais nodded. I am also given to understand that you maintain a degree of, as it were, professional discretion with respect to private commissions. Anyway, so Kinsey comes in, we get this creepy description of him. They sit down. Kinsey pretty much says that, you know, he has a, you know, at first, at first, Anais is sort of worried that he's going to, like, beat around the bush about what he wants because that's pretty much typical with her private clients. You know, really, again, excellent bit of detail, a bit of character shading there that it's so common that she's developed some kind of routine or strategy for coaxing people to tell them what, what she wants so she, she can actually get working on it, you know? Subtle and good. Subtle and good. LMB. But to her surprise, he's to the point and concise, uh, although he continues like talking in this sort of sleazy uh, cadence, you know, very slimy cadence. And it's interesting that LMB even points that out once again. It's like, She's using the, the heavy-handed description of how slimy this guy is uh, for a purpose. It's not just lazy, cliched character development. So, and she, and it's just sort of like a little acknowledgement that she knows what she's doing. Anais clears her throat. Well, naturally, when one is asked to handle someone's inmost um, thoughts to make them come alive, as it were, any public broadcast of the private feelings confided in one would be the greatest discourtesy she said encouragingly echoing his style so here we go we have a adverb use use of the ly adverb as a speech modifier uh-oh the dreaded but then we have echoing his style that that little bit right there those three words that lets you know that she knows what she's doing that he is talking in an affected way and that her character is kind of teasing him in a sense about it, or at least trying to make a joke of it herself, you know, in a maybe not obvious way to him. She also, still a little trepidatious that he's going to start beating around the bush, tries to ease him into disclosing what he wants her to do, and to her surprise, he pulls out a script. I have here, he says, surprising her by taking a sheaf of papers from a carrying case, a precise scenario for the dream I wish to commission. I would wish it to be followed exactly. Please look it over. If you feel you would be able to do it, I have two requirements. First, that this commission not be discussed with anyone under any circumstances whatsoever. Second, that the sole copy and all rights to its use be delivered over to me absolutely. For a first-class interpretation with those criteria met, I am prepared to pay 20,000 SAH pesadoros. Okay, once again, like, you know, alarm bells should be going off. And it, it's just something, it's just too much. And not too much to a fault, but like, I really think that she is trying to do some misdirection here. And it, but not even in the way misdirection is typically used. 
Okay, so there's levels to this, and and maybe I'm overthinking it, but uh, we'll get to we'll get to what I mean in a little bit. Oh, and then uh, so then here we go, more world building, talking about the currency S A H pesadoros. I don't know if pesadoro is an actual currency. Let's let's find out. Okay, so I googled pesadoro, and it came up with the Verkosigan. Uh, wiki, which is verkosigan.fandom.com, which is also another source I will be using heavily because it's amazing and it's really indexed really well. And so, yeah, I encourage everyone to check it out. So here we have this thing, the SAH Pesadora. You know, what is SAH? Well, let's let's try to figure it out. I, I like playing a game about figuring out acronyms. So we know we're in Rio. Okay. So let's say South American. That makes sense, right? And then H. Well, usually I find in sci-fi stories, the writers are fond of using the word hegemony to describe governments. So I would guess it is the South American hegemony, Pesadoro. But how would we know? Well, I guess we could follow that link to the Wikipedia page, but what I've also done is used my reference material, which I paid for, which is in the in the form of the Vorkosigan Companion, and contained within the Vorkosigan Companion is the Vorkosigan Saga Concordance. And what is that? What is a concordance in this context? Well, it's a glossary. And it's huge. It's, I mean, this is kind of the size of, of a, you know, a te- standard paperback. The print's a little larger. The concordance goes from page 341 to 630. This was edited by and compiled by Carrie Hughes, John Helfers, and Ed Burkhead. There is a little bit of an introduction here, so I will not repeat my last mistake, and I will read it. The following abbreviations are used to denote where the defined terms appear in the Borkosigan saga. Okay, so we don't have to go through that, but that's just, you know, the example for Dreamweaver's Dilemma would be DD. Then we have another short little paragraph here. Terms are listed alphabetically without regard to punctuation. Although we have tried to make this concordance as complete as possible, please note that Lois's novels cover more than 1,000 years of future history. The writers and editors are all too aware that mistakes are inevitable in such a mammoth work. Comments, questions, and suggestions, or additions, or corrections, may be sent to the following address. Okay, well, I guess I'll read it out here as well. John Helfers, H-E-L-F-E-R-S, care of Bean Books Enterprises, 500 Wait Ave, W-A-I-T Ave, number 6, Wake Forest, North Carolina, 27587. Okay. Oh, cool. And... In our concordance, here we go to the S's and an S-A-H pesadoro, a South American monetary unit. Okay, and then, oh, there's an explanation. There's a a little spoiler here, but it it pretty much just says that it's the currency offered to Anais Ruiz for her feely dream. And so interesting, though, it it does not say what the H stands for there. Huh. Uh, I'm I'm gonna assume it's hegemony. Hey, let, let's let's just for fun. Let's go follow the the link to the Pesadaro and Verkosigan.fan.com Wikipedia. Okay. Interesting. Wow. Oh man. They, okay. Here we go. The S A H Pesadaro was a unit of currency on Old Earth, approximately 600 years. Oh, before the main character. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna spoil. Try. I'm not trying not to spoil things. 
but before the main storyline. So uh, the spoiler I will say is that these first few books that we're going to be reading are not they're not uh, directly related to the main storyline of the series, but they are technically in the canon in the universe, and so we're going to cover them. And this is also probably can be backed up from the timeline that uh, exists both in the Dreamweaver's Dilemma compilation and the Vorkosigan companion. Approximately 600 years before the main storyline, the only estimates of its worth come from knowing that a generous single-use commission for a feely dream from a noted composer of such was 20,000 pesadaros, and that and that the commission of a... Ah, there's more spoilers. Nope, I'm not going to... Oh, okay, all right, okay. So we're going to... We'll come back. Well, we, we don't really need, necessarily need to come back. It's really not useful to know <laughs> what the uh, estimated current value of a pesadora is. Once again, just a subtle, a subtle and also believable and probable piece of world building in the sense that if, if in fact, that H stood for hegemony, that would mean that this modern society is a coalition of nations of the entire South American continent, which, you know, is kind of interesting speculation could be possibly back to the book jaku says back to the book so so kinsey hands over the paper to anias anias is internally freaking out because apparently that is twenty thousand pesadoras is a significant sum of money but she's trying to keep a cool demeanor and also you know trying to not uh, let her judgment at whatever perverse thing that Kinsey is going to ask her to do show on her face so Kinsey hands over the paper and she reads through it and we sort of get in a very implied off-screen kind of how sick how strange or depraved this feely dream Kinsey is asking her to do when she talks about the elements of the dream in a attached professional tone what an excellent method storytelling method here leave things up to the reader's imagination context 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 and here it just gets just salacious enough to really kind of let you know that whatever you were thinking however depraved it was this is the level he's at so Anais is making a comment here now to Kinsey about what, what he wants there are some technical problems the scene where the children playing turn into a school of sharks and the dreamer slides down one's throat that twists into the fellatio scene that dissolves into the gun going off and blowing out the back of her head. Do you want zoom transitions or melts? How much pain? What odors? Okay, so again, we get even more fleshed out, like how immersive these feely dreams can be. Um, I mean, I have I have some problems with Anias's character. It's not her. I don't believe it's LMB's strongest character. She's not really that relatable because. She seems to have everything she wants from the start of the story, explicitly saying that she has everything she wants, and yet she is sort of in a mess of her own creation. So it's not even like she's being persecuted from the outside. It's it just it just really just seems it's hard to feel sympathy for her, you know. <laughs> so and, and from that point of view, it's like the story doesn't start it starts off a little rough. You know, the main character seems like not very not a very like, why would I care about this person? <laughs> you know, like she's an artist living off of her art rather successfully. She is able to afford a nice apartment. She sort of wakes up whenever she wants. We understand that she is able to like flippantly disregard her work responsibilities and never really burns any bridges, just gets sort of like slaps on the wrist. And even this now, this her 
financial situation where her her distributor finally had to come down on her she could have easily i mean yeah she's having some like i guess what you would call writer's block or some sort of dysfunction around this one specific storyline but then she's just so eager to try to do something else just to make that money up it's a little frustrating as a reader <laughs> she was just like come on get it together you know but the it's stuff like this where where you can see kind of like the artist and be like oh what does he have to be depressed about and yet when you see the result of the art you're like oh okay i, I can respect this person even though their life is complete disaster you know they have this inside them and they express it and so this detail that lmb is giving to the you know the nuances of what it takes to create a philly dream makes me kind of develop a new respect and sense of wonder for Anais as, as a character. So back to the story. After she finishes reading the script, Anais kind of comments that it doesn't really resolve very well. Kindy's like, well, you just want it exactly the way it is. And they make an agreement not to tell anybody. He really did not want anyone else to know that this dream got made and who it was for and anything about it. Once again, she's like, okay, how can I contact you? It'll be about two weeks. How can I, and she's like, oh, you can't contact me. <laughs> just, it's just, it's a, it's a lot, you know, but I'll just show back up in two weeks, you know. It's just so sus, it's so sus. Is that, is that slang still in use? And they make an agreement that he'll come back in two weeks and then he leaves. At that moment, she gets another phone call uh, and the phone starts ringing and as she goes over to pick it up, she thinks about this person in her life that she mentioned in the in the very first paragraph of the story. That was the setup. Here's a little more of the setup and payoff. So it's just a reason for her to think of him, I guess, that he's associated with the phone with the phone and the phone rings all the time. On her way to answer this phone call, she thinks of him again because he is notorious, I guess, for never answering the phone. And she kind of develops the idea that, hey, that guy lives in a kind of remote place. I'm too distracted here. The bone's ringing off the hook all the time. Maybe I'll go and visit him and for a couple of weeks so I can concentrate on this very weird feeling dream that I have to do. When she finally answers the phone, uh, of course, it's Helmut Gonzalez again, hounding her. And uh, she does this kind of silly thing where like, she pretends that she's actually a recording of herself telling him to leave a message. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's just it's that's kind of a little pushes the realm, the realms, uh, the limits of believability a little bit <laughs> that he would fall for something like that. But whatever, it's I give it a pass. And then and then so this is like the end of the section section. And, and this story, the story sections are kind of split up as sometimes they do. And they put little three little uh, stars here to kind of indicate it, indicate this is a new section. So the man that. And I'm gonna I want to read through this paragraph, and uh, that'll be it for this episode. Um, but the man that she's going to go visit, the guy notoriously will not answer the phone. I, I promise this is not the most interesting about this man. His name is Chalmers Dubauer, and let us just stick a pin in that name, Dubauer. And and the part of that on that pin, let's write this name is from the very first thing LMB wrote as a attempt to be a professional writer. Let's keep that in mind. I, I mean, how much of this did she have in her head? But this guy, his name is Chalmers Dubauer. And here we get an introductory paragraph for this character. And I just really want to contrast this with the introductory paragraph of Anais Ray's character, okay? And to review, I had a lot of problems with that. I thought that the metaphor that 
LMB used for her waking up, which was her, her waking was like being a fish caught on the end of a spear and being pulled out of the water. I thought that was like that metaphor really failed because it, I just did not associate that feeling, you know, and then it's sort of even a mixed metaphor because it's just like I, I can get it because maybe like the act of waking is like being pulled out of water. I don't know, but it just didn't work. It was distracting and there's no need to bring in sea life metaphors when there's no like sea life in the rest of the story it's just not related uh, and then there's also a reference to this character Thomas Dubauer in that first paragraph and we're like man we're vaguely referencing other characters but I'm supposed to be trying to understand who this person is also another pet peeve of mine and I will be the first to admit that I committed this sin in uh, my ultimate film school project where I made a, a kind of 20 minute long horror film and the very first shot of this of that film and the, you'll notice over and over again that when people introduce characters in their stories even in writing but in film it's more obvious they'll do this thing where they start up with a close-up of their closed eye and the eye opens up and then they awaken start suddenly like it's so many movies even the most recent Dune movie I think did that and so Anais's character, that's pretty much in, liter in the literary version of that. She's startled awake from it. And it's just, I just find that it's like, it's clear. It's a cl and even my calling things cliche has become cliche, but it is a cliche. When I see it, it takes me out of the story, which is how cliches uh, function to her story. So let's compare that, all those problems, all that nerve rage to this paragraph, which has got so much in it. And I'm really building it up here, but this could be its own the introduction to its own story and right off the bat if this was the story we we're reading about this one character you know we could see just how compelling that story could be all right so here's the very let's, let's look at the very first couple of sentences here Thomas Dubauer once called himself an exile in time being by early training and temperament more an engineer than a poet he spoke precisely and not metaphorically he spent some 25 subjective years serving aboard the early atomic ram ships traveling near the speed of light to and from Earth's only successful pre-wormhole colony. Okay, so we get first three sentences there. First sentence, Chalmers Dubauer, and, and I, did, I did look up uh, the pronunciation of this name. Uh, it's, it's spelled kind of interesting, C-H-A-L-M-Y-S, Chalmers. In fact, it, it sounds a lot like this other word from the Dune series, which was a Chalm, I believe it's Chalmers. And it's the the name to poison someone's food. And I, I wonder, I, I looked it up to see if possibly it was spelled the same way and it could be some sort of reference to Dune, but it, it wasn't spelled the same way. But anyway, Thomas Dubauer once called himself an exile in time. Okay, so compelling. I mean, it's a prosy sentence. It's tight, it's short, and it says so much. So he calls himself an exile in time. So he's referencing himself that way. That means that this character is able of that sort of poetic thinking. Yet the very next sentence, being by early training and temperament more an engineer than a poet, he spoke precisely and not metaphorically. Okay, we first think that he's speaking metaphorically, but then the very next sentence, we're misdirected and subverted. See what I'm saying? She does this. And that no, this is, he's speaking literally. He's an exile in time. Now, what could that mean? Third sentence. He'd spent some 25 subjective years aboard an early atomic ramship, traveling near the speed of light to and from Earth's only successful pre-wormhole colony. 
Wow. Okay. So that's one sentence. But how many hundreds of years do you picture passing in your mind when you read that sentence? And that's what I'm talking about, you know? Let's break that sentence down a little bit. He spent some 25 subjective years serving aboard an early atomic ram ship traveling near the speed of light. So she's assuming that we have some understanding of time dilation uh, as sci-fi fans, and we should. So she's assuming that we have some understanding of that when she says 25 subjective years. Okay, that means that she's indicating there's a difference between the years that he lived the 25 years and some other year then confirming that by saying that he was aboard these early near light speed vessels okay so we have character development that lends a serious amount of intrigue to this guy who god knows because depending on how close to light speed of light you know he was traveling and we have no context frame of reference to what time the period this is taking place relative to you know modern times so you know, we really have no way of knowing how many Earth years, we could say, had passed while he was traveling at this near speed of light. Because we don't know how far he was going. And then we get the last part of the sentence. To and from Earth's only successful pre-wormhole colony. So now we understand he was traveling these distance because he was doing some sort of maybe trade route or supply missions or something having to do with another world colony so now that whole concept has been introduced into this universe that there are colonized worlds but not just that that it's only successful one meaning implying that there were others that failed and what were those stories you know just the only six she says only successful and and what do you see in your mind you see you see like some sort of like hostile environment where people are dying from you know some kind of environmental exposure totally beyond hope you know light years away from earth, you know like just those three words and then and then to top it off the only successful pre-wormhole colony so in there she introduces a concept that there's wormhole travel okay so we get the whole story of this guy's life in almost this one sentence and and, and she elaborates more on this and I actually think I'm, I'm not even going to go past this third sentence because on this episode because we're coming up, you know, I don't, I don't know, I haven't edited yet, but it's <laughs> the unedited episode with many pauses to stop and read is right now at 140. So we'll see what it cuts down to. I just wanted to, like, just that one last sentence really sums up the possible bittersweet tragedy of this guy's life. And that is reinforced when you go back up to the first sentence how he considers himself an exile in time and he's not being he's not being poetic about it or maybe he is a little bit you know and, and you know and this paragraph uh, is, is a pretty chonky one it keeps going and there's way way more good stuff just like that in there and we will continue with that in our uh, introduction and this is really when, when this, this, uh, this story kicks off I said it kind of got off to a rocky start but at, at this point, we really start hitting our stride. LMB really starts hitting our stride, and, and we're getting the good stuff. So stay tuned for that. So until next time, fellow Forkies. 
I will see you all on the other side of the wormhole next time.